run. Run! Move! Move! Sturdy! Get back! Get back! Everyone, get back! Welcome back to For All Mankind, the official podcast. I'm Chris Marshall, a.k.a. Commander Danielle Poole, on the Apple TV Plus series. This is our finale episode of the season, and therefore our final episode of the pod. You should know by now that this podcast will be jam-packed with spoilers, and this finale is a doozy, so don't even think about listening without watching it first. Today, there is so much to talk about that we had to make this episode a two-parter. First, I'll be sitting down with Chantel Van Santen, who plays Karen Baldwin, and Sonia Walger, who plays Molly Cobb, to discuss you-know-what. Afterwards, I've got executive producers Matt Walpert and Ben Nadivi to go over the whole season and where the show is headed from here. But first, let's recap the finale. We start the episode with a montage of the North Korean astronaut, Lee Jung-gil, who was the actual first person to set foot on Mars. Back in real time, Danielle and Coos are being held hostage, but they devise a plan, sneaking up on Lee, disarming him, and dragging him back to the Happy Valley base. Everyone is working to get Kelly to Phoenix as fast as possible, but in order to pull it off, the rest of the crew will need to remain on Mars for an additional year and a half. While the world is watching the daring mission, Jimmy's friends park a van outside of Johnson Space Center and detonate a devastating bomb. The building is destroyed, Karen and Molly are killed, and Margot is missing. Back on Mars, Kelly makes it safely to Phoenix, but Danny Stevens gets exiled to the North Korean capsule after confessing to Ed that he caused the landslide. And Margot? Turns out, she made it out alive. And the season ends in 2001, revealing her new life in Moscow. I said, yeah, sign me up. Yes, Molly, of course you did, because you're a selfish prick. No, I I was going to say that you're a force of nature. No, and I'm a selfish prick. That's okay. Selfish pricks change the world. Your ex-husband is one. Devayessa, I guarantee you, is a card-carrying member of the Selfish Prick Club. And deep down, much as you try to hide it, you are too. I am with two very special human beings. Chantel Vincenton, who plays Karen Baldwin. Hmm. Hi, Chantel. Hi. And Sonia Walger, <laughs> who plays Molly Cobb. Hi, son. Hello. You guys, I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm sure our audience <laughs> is listening and they're just like, where do we even go from here? So let's mm. just dive right in. Sonia, JSC, blown to smithereens. What was that experience like when you first opened up the script for 310? Did you know going in what was going to happen with Molly? Had you guys already discussed this trajectory for her? As far as I've 
being concerned. I've been ready to walk Molly off the show since season one. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, you know, she was supposed to die, I think, after two episodes back She in was going to die, one. I think, in 105 or 106. At one point, she was supposed to drop, yeah. fly into a cliff or something crazy like that. Yeah. Something, something hardcore. Um, <laughs> what it means is, oddly... We can't live without you. Is Sorry, that, <laughs> But what it, it's meant is that, oddly, I walked in with this little kernel of death already in my palm. Mm. I came in expecting to say goodbye at any given moment. And in a way, I think that helped me all the way through because mm. every time I was back for another season, it just felt like an absolute bonus, just a gift to be given to play her again. And, you know, we get to season two and she's been irradiated within an inch of her life and she's losing her <laughs> eyesight. And I'm like, yeah, guys, I think I think we did it. Uh, this was amazing. I love you all. Best of luck with season three. And then I get a call from Matt and Ben in the depths of the pandemic where they're like, yeah, we'd like you to come back. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what, for catering? Well, how are we? <laughs> what am I? What am I? Like, I love you and I'm there for it. I'm just curious what use you have for a 70-year-old <laughs> blind astronaut. <laughs> and, um, and they pitch me this little arc where they're like, no, she's, NASA would have caught up with the technology. NASA would have created what Molly needed to run the astronaut office. So that's where she is. She's running the show. She's putting people on the moon. She's taking people up to space. She's picking who's going to Mars. Mm -hmm. She's as opinionated as ever. We've given her a dog <laughs> and, um, we're going to give her a hero's death mm. was what they told me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm going to get teary just talking about it. They said to me, we will make sure she goes out in the way that she should. And I never asked again because you don't have to with these guys. You know that they will honor that. So when, in answer to your original question, when I got the script for 10, I was on a plane with my husband. I forget where we were going. And we had the littles and I had one kid either side of me. Mm -hmm. And... I'm in air, which felt so appropriate to read Molly's end while being 50,000 feet up. And I wept. Mm. I just mm -hmm. wept. I had my, I was so grateful that I had my children under each arm and they would both looked at me furious because my, I was in the way of Scooby-Doo and I <laughs> like, I'm like holding them into me. And my husband looks over at me like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I just shake my head. I've got tears pouring down my cheeks. Um, it just, it felt so beautiful and so right. I do remember really closing the script with a feeling of like, there we are. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's how Molly would go wandering blindly back into a building to rescue annoying people who hadn't got out, you know. <laughs> Chantal, how about you? What was your impression of 310 as it uh, scrolled past your eyes? I wish I was good at goodbyes. Um, starting off from a young age, having parents who were divorced, I've spent my life saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. And I would think that at some point I've got to get 
fucking better at this because <laughs> we all know that this job is not permanent. Like every job is going to end. And, and as much as that's the only certainty that we have both in life and in our career and on the show, um, I'm really not good mm. at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I avoid it until the last minute. I fight it. I get angry with it. I push people, scripts, everything away so that I don't have to uh, have closure. Even driving here today, mm-hmm. it was like, just turn this damn car around and go home and say I'm <laughs> sick. But I can't, I don't want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just, um, all of it feels more and more real. Um, that, you know, the last time I did ADR, this last podcast, you know, the last episode I'll ever watch of Karen. And of course, there's something where I'm going to watch the show forever Mm -hmm. because I believe in our Mm -hmm. show. I believe in those that we have left behind who will carry the show forward. And Matt and Ben, who've created something that I'm so incredibly fortunate to have been a part of mm. um, and Karen's journey and the things that I've learned, but God, it sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was not easy to read. I'll tell you, no one gave me a heads up about what 310 had in store. And so as these girls mentioned, we receive our scripts and within a few days, we all make our way into reading them and we try to kind of be gracious enough not to spoil it for each other. And so I had not... Known. Unless you're Joel. There you go. <laughs> Joel's like, hey, our kid dies. And you're like, dude, I've read the episode. <laughs> yes. So when I read it, I had no idea what was going to happen. And I remember, you know, we discover Karen's death first. And then I go on and then I see that we lose Molly. And I, much like you, Sonia, just closed my computer and just openly wept. Yeah. I was inconsolable. And so I think, you know, I think for us, it feels obvious, but I think maybe for folks listening in, they're probably wondering like, okay, you guys are actors, you know, what you do for a living is to play a story, live a life, and then at some point either go away or die. Sonia, what is it that is so special about this for all mankind experience? Why is it that I feel stomach sick watching 310, that Chantel doesn't even want to open the pages, that that you felt like it was such a blessing each episode that you got to come back, each season that you got to return? Is it about the people? Is it about the story? What is it you think it is? You know, at the end of the day, there's only a handful of stories in the world that we can Mm -hmm. tell. And they're really about, was I loved? (laughs) at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Was I loved? Did I love? And then we we dress them up with extraordinary scenery or not, or we hone in and make them exquisitely domesticated, or we widen out and make them epic in scope. And I think the strange alchemy of this show is that it does both, is that it goes into beautiful, intimate, tight, tight detail of a domestic arrangement of a love affair, of unrequited love. And then it widens out to planets, undiscovered planets. And so my character, and I would argue all our characters, but I'll speak for mine, against that scope is automatically heroic, Mm -hmm. just automatically huge in scope. 
Molly, however blind, however fragile, <laughs> however cantankerous, is always the first woman that we put on the moon. And that is just enormous to get to play someone. I think it's my first hero that I've played that I really look up to, that I am like, what an amazing thing that I got to excavate that part of me in order to mm -hmm. play this woman. I think that's a piece of it. I think that's a piece of, of stepping away and feeling like, oh, am I destined now to hold a clipboard and stand over mm -hmm. a dead body or climb back into... <laughs> Not a dead body. <laughs> climb, you know, squeeze myself back into a theory pantsuit. I mean, I can hope not, man. I really do. But how about those... those um, what were the contraptions you had to wear the first time? The suit. That was the only bad part, I think, right? Where you would, the actual yeah, suit. Yeah, you would show us bruises. Believe me, <laughs> I, I, will, I will... Between the spacesuit and the That's theory pantsuit. Sonia. <laughs> I wonder if there's a middle ground. Ground. Yeah, just a cross-section of misery, those two suits. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've been talking about this a lot throughout the podcast, that even though we are all such a tight-knit group, because we all tell stories that are oftentimes in different countries or on different planets altogether, we as actors don't always get to work together. And you two are an example of that, where you guys have been on the same show mm -hmm. for many, many years and have probably had maybe five scenes together. Mm -hmm. You know, Karen and Molly have this conversation. Karen comes to see Wayne. Wayne's not home. Molly says, you know, get on with it, get to the meat and potatoes. Talk to me about, Sonia, the experience of what it means to be a selfish prick. Because ultimately, in my opinion, neither of these guys actually is a selfish prick at all. You know, mm. I mean, when it comes down to it, both Molly and Karen give their lives in the service of others. Tell me more about the Selfish Prick Club. I think what Molly means is, I think there's a bigger reference to the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. To a degree, you have to think like the men who have shut you out for this long. And if you want to climb into your power, uh, if you want to take up the full space that you, as a human being, forget as a woman, deserve, then you have to think like those who are so used to power that they don't question it anymore. And so I think what she sees in Karen is a nascent like a butterfly with its wings still wet, mm -hmm. trying to climb out of that chrysalis, saying, if you want what's yours, then you have to think like those who have had it all this time. Mm -hmm. You're so right, Sonia. You know, I think so often, I can't think of like Ed going to Gordo and being like, oh, Gordo, should I do this? Oh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. This feels like, you know what I mean? And it's interesting because I think it's important to highlight in our characters, and Karen couldn't have gone to a more perfect, um, un <laughs> unknowingly, uh, to a more perfect person. And, and I think about, uh, and I remember shooting that day, I thought about the full circle of, you know, the Karen who started off, you know, ranting and raving about Molly and mm -hmm. who the hell does she think mm -hmm. she is? She's going to do these things that men do. And now I'm sitting in front of you like, I want to do the things that I watched you do. I want to feel inspired again and I want to tell me mm -hmm. it's okay. And 
even though she's accomplished all these things and watched women before her pave the way, it still doesn't feel like she can. Mm. She doesn't feel like there's that that place for her still. And that's where I know as the show goes forward and pray that it just becomes more innate. We have these big time jumps between seasons, which as an actor is very unusual to play a character over such a long span of their lives. And, you know, when we meet these women, Karen's in her 20s or 30s, and then now we're seeing her into her 60s. Chantel, now that you've had some distance from it all, what has that experience been like to play the same person? What do you try to bring with you in each season of Karen's iteration? And what do you think you leave behind going into each season? For me, the process I learned was sitting down with my journal and the years in between. I actually was going through it yesterday Mm. and going through it in the years in between and looking at what music was out that I would like. What are some of the historical events? How would I feel about it? Did I Mm -hmm. vote? This last season it was... What a great question. I know. (laughs) Who did I vote for? Did I even vote? It's such a strange concept. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I mean, I I would just spend the months thinking about... Did Karen paint the living room a different color in these 10 years? Did she plant a new plant? Did a parent die? Um, This last season, it was, when did she go through menopause? Mm -hmm. What would menopause be Mm -hmm. like? How would it affect her? Oh, guess what? She went through a divorce. What song did she listen to on the way home from the divorce? Oh, Wilson Phillips, hold on for one more day because it was 1990. Mm. And so for me, I know all of these dumb imaginary things that I have journaled hundreds and hundreds of pages about and choices I've made for Karen that we never saw on screen, but that would feel like she had this fleshed out life in between. It was fun and it was another part of the challenge and it allowed me to constantly be using my mind to create. You know, listening to you, Chantal, it's so lovely hearing, you know, all that you put into Karen. And and as the little that I've seen of season three, it's there. It's all that work is there. It really is. She's such a fleshed out, developed woman. It really is palpable. I didn't do that for Molly between seasons because Molly is so set in her ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Molly dresses almost identically all the way through all three seasons. You know, she found her uniform in her 20s and it didn't change. I think she's still listening to, you know, jazz piano, regardless of what year it is. My challenge sort of going into season three were much more practical. They were, how do Mm -hmm. I handle a guide dog on set? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do I work with a cane and not look like uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin sort of faking mm-hmm. it around a corner. Mm-hmm. How do I read Braille? <laughs> how do I mm-hmm. how do I work mm-hmm. these machines? I, I felt the enormous responsibility of doing it right and of not making it sort of a parody in any way. Okay, so I want to break down the experience of each of you. What was it like the day that you shot your death scenes? Let me actually ask you first, Sonia, Mm -hmm. what was it like to see the set as a human being? We spend so much time there. We've done Mm. photo shoots there. We, Mm. you know, in and out of lunch, had a million coffees. And now you see the space that you know so well, and it's just blown to smithereens. 
but it was palpable. I mean, you felt it. You felt it. There wasn't a lot of work required, honestly. You, you just had to be, I had to be there on the floor crawling, crawling through it with pieces of stuff falling on me while pretending to be blind. So trying not to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, mm-hmm. so there's that dissonance too, right? Um, and trying, as I say, to stay true to the shock and the numbness of a moment like that. I've been in two bombs that have gone off, uh, two IRA bombs as a kid. What? Yeah. Wow. One when I was very young. I think I was 10. Uh, I was in an IRA bomb. Oh my bomb. God. And all I remember is the calm, absolute, mm. uncanny, ex- just extraordinary calm of, maybe it's the Brits, I don't know, but walking <laughs> slowly, <laughs> calmly out of this staircase, this spiral staircase to get downstairs and people making way for women and children and there being no screaming and no yelling, just this this quiet. And I remember hanging on to that, the sort of numbness that kicks in and the slight disassociation mm-hmm. and also the part of Molly that would have trained for in an extreme situation, you still know what to do because Mm -hmm. that would be part Mm -hmm. of the astronaut training, right? Would be readiness for anything. Can you fix it with a shoelace? Can you, you know, how will we get through this? So even with ringing in her ears, disorientation and dissociation, Molly knows how many steps to get out of JSC, where to turn left. She doesn't have her stick, but she could smell her way out of that building. So all of these things, sort of enormous familiarity in the midst of deep unfamiliarity. I do remember wishing that I had one of the old cast there with me. Mm. I do remember longing for you a Jody, a Joel, a Gorda. You know what I mean? Like, I do remember thinking, oh my God, what I'd give for like one of the old guard to be mm-hmm. here, to be someone that Molly could lean on, that I, Sonia, could hang with on the day. It, it felt, as I'm sure for you, Chantal, there's a loneliness yeah. that I think all of us have found, right, in our splintered stories, that there's such relief yeah. on the scenes where you get to come together, where Chantal and, you know, you and I yeah. had that even relief in the hair and makeup trailer when you're yeah. in between, you only have that one scene. And then, you know what I mean, Chris, you're getting ready for a yeah, second unit next totally. to me. We're yeah. in at 2 a.m. and we're in yeah. it together. There totally. is. Otherwise it does. Yeah. You, it is lonely. miss that camaraderie. But then I did. Then the last day Matt and Ben came in and we were in JSC and it was in tatters and there were mm. some cast around and they came in and they handed me my flight suit. Oh and they, my goodness. My folded up flight suit. <laughs> And they handed me my Molly aviator glasses and they handed me the framed photo that hangs in the office of Molly finding ice on the moon, that wonderful photo. I love that photo. photo. Yeah. And I, uh, I think I wept. Pretty sure I wept. It was a very lovely, very lovely thing. It doesn't always happen. And I felt like I got the kind of, you know, the send off that Molly, if not I, deserved. Mm Mm-hmm. Chantal, talk about your, and not necessarily your last day, because sometimes our last days are like weird yeah. pickup shoots. So you're mm-hmm, like, okay, now mm-hmm. I'm doing this weird phone scene as, mm-hmm. from episode three, right? You know, but <laughs> getting out of a car. It's just so boring, right? Um, yeah. But talk about one of the sort of seminal moments, yeah, in the last days of working as Karen. 
you know, we actually filmed Karen being discovered laying in the rubble before my last day. And I remember they built on the Sony lot, they built like this giant, like almost a story and a half tall on like metal rafters, like all of this building Mm -hmm. debris. And I had to climb up through it all and I had to bury myself underneath like one part of styrofoam rock. But then they used other real rocks that I would place my head on and it was so strange uh, to be like, Okay. And then after we placed my myself there and they were setting up the camera, I walked back down this whole stadium of debris and I stood there while they decided the levels of blood and dust. Mm. And, you know, you're just standing around. And I remember I had tears running down my face. And I was making everybody laugh though, because I didn't, I wanted to distract from the fact that I was so mm-hmm. sad. And right before I walked up to film the scene, I grabbed Ben's hand and I said, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. And I was, he's like, it's okay though. And I was like, I know. I just don't <laughs> want to. And I walked up the stairs and I laid underneath the rock and uh, I had some conversations with my grandma while I was there because <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. And um, I remember just thinking, peace, take your last breath. It's okay to stop fighting. Mm. You fought your whole life. Karen, mm. it's okay. And I remember taking my my last breath on camera and then they called cut. And I was like, was that okay? Is that how you're supposed to die? Because I don't know. And I'm like crying and we're all laughing. And it was just like, you know, there's also this actor part of you that's like, I don't know what I'm doing. As we draw this conversation to a close, Chantel, don't cry. Hold it in. Oh, yeah, right, girl. <laughs> um, I'll start with you, Chantel. When you look back on the whole of the experience of For All Mankind, what was the highlight and what was the low light? The highlight is getting to leave a show knowing that you've gained a family forever Mm -hmm. because it is very rare. Um, There is nothing that I walk away from this being uh, upset about only that I have to walk away. Um, My life is richer. I've grown. And I am deeply grateful for this show and especially for the women who inspire me personally and professionally, like both of you. Hmm. Thanks, buddy. Love you. (laughs) Sonia, same question. Highlight was, you know, Swinging from a rope in a suit, (laughs) finding ice while Joel waited for me at the top. I mean, (laughs) that was cool. Scaling a 60-foot styrofoam crater Mm -hmm. in a role I never thought I'd get to play. I never even imagined I'd get to play someone like this at this stage in my life. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know these roles were out there. But it felt like a movie role and not the kind of thing you get to do in TV. So the grand adventurer, it was an absolute highlight for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a low light was setting the alarm for 3.27 a.m. Uh, in order. Uh, let me tell you, I have you beat. 1.30 a.m. And there was, it was so many times 
I texted Jody and Chris and and I was like, oh, guys, Lord. I have to be up at yeah. 1.30. No, I got to go to bed at 4 p.m. How do I do no. this? You should go to bed. You should go to bed now. Just go to bed now. Yeah. You know, I do have to say one thing because I'm so caught up in how I feel and the goodbye of this that there is a highlight that I think about often, which is who the f- thought that Karen would ever go to space. Mm. And Chantel, when I read that Mm -hmm. first episode, screamed in excitement (laughs) because my dream is to just be able to take that commercial flight into space for that 45 seconds of sitting up there. And even in this fake world, even on my own, you know, rotating Mm -hmm. hotel, Karen was still in space. I was still in space. Like, I would tell Joel, go Uh look out the window, dude, Uh that's space. And he's like, no, it's the rafters of stage nine, Chantel. I'm like, don't, don't you dare yeah. deflate my dream. <laughs> but yes, doing the things that I, Chantel, dream of someday was not something I thought I would get to experience with Karen. <laughs> well, I, man, my face is hurting from smiling so hard. Hmm. I just adore you both so much. I love you both. I thank you both for taking the time to sit with me today. Chantel Van Santen, Sonia Walger, thanks for being on the pod. Thanks for having us. Goodbye, girls. Bye, darlings. Thank you. <laughs> Love you. This conversation, I am talking to our two showrunners, but truly the folks who I'm mad at because they just, they really did it to me. They really did me in this week. I got Ben Nadivi and Matt Walpert here. Hi, guys. Hey, Chris. Hi. I mean, shaken, disturbed, upset, angry, sad, you name it. Watching 310 was a real roller coaster of emotion. Ben, I'll start with you. How do you feel about having seen 310, this this baby that you guys have been cooking together? Because you guys wrote this episode together. When you look at the finished product, how do you feel about it? First, I want to say I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm, so I'm sorry. sure there's a lot of angry people right now. Yeah. A lot of angry people. I have to say, you know, watching the episode, I've watched it now maybe 500 times, but every time it impacts me and, and I feel like, you know, what we aim to do, we achieved. It's heart wrenching and it was a tough episode to write mm-hmm. and an even tougher episode to produce. But, you know, just the power of it. And I, I love how the stories kind of tie together again. I mean, every season, I feel like we've gone bigger from mm-hmm. the season before. So I think more than anything, I'm just terrified for season four finale at this point. <laughs> Matt, same question. How do you feel when you look at 310? Can you feel pride? Like, oh, we did a good thing. Or is it always like one more thing, one more thing, one more thing? Yeah, I definitely struggle a little bit with the uh, what could have been little moments. I mean, I'm very proud of of the episode overall, but it, there's always that experience of like the scene that we had to cut or the thing that we had to adjust. But, you know, I do love the way the episode turned out. And I was watching it with our sound mixing team mm-hmm. recently and watching it with other people. It's really a funny episode, too. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of humor in it mm-hmm. in addition to the drama and the tension and the tears. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy that about it. Talk to me about the start of episode 310, because in reading it, it's just such a departure from any other thing that's happened. We've had this whole season of 
ramp up, ramp up. And so now we've got this huge climax at the end of nine. And then we begin with just this crazy, weird, country western, yeah. pedestrian, sad, short lonely, short film within this series. Yeah. Matt, yeah. like, do you guys just say like, oh, I'm just gonna do something totally crazy? Like, how, how did you decide to slow it down when the audience is expecting us to keep on ramping up? Well, expectation is such a huge part of how we try to write. We try to think about audience expectations mm-hmm. and what they think is going to happen. And then we try to subvert that because mm-hmm. I think the more you subvert expectation, the the more entertaining something can be. Mm-hmm. And the whole introduction of this North Korean element, it felt so 90s to us because there were all of those special envoy Bill Richardson was going to try to convince the North Koreans to to, to like get rid of their nuclear weapons. And it felt like it, they should be a part of the world in some mm-hmm. way. And, and it made sense that they might have, in their search for prestige uh, and sort of recognition as a world power, shifted to a space program instead of a ballistic missile program. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, following that through it was also part of you know the ending of of episode 210 and those boots and I mean we, we knew everybody was like okay is that NASA or is that the Soviets mm-hmm, and we're like mm-hmm. well, okay well who would it be if it's neither of those people mm-hmm. and who would be the craziest person for us to say it was I love that callback you want to talk about releasing expectations because <laughs> the whole time I'm yeah. like oh that's definitely Danielle's boots and of course Joel yeah. like, no 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 those are those are Ed's boots and then to just yeah. be like wait a minute these are Lee Jung Gil's boots <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, in the end of nine, it was like when you meet Lee, it's this very intense, kind of dramatic, scary moment of mm-hmm. what's going to happen to Kuz and Danielle at uh, this guy holding them at gunpoint. And so the beginning of 10 was really all about okay, how do we humanize this guy who we've introduced in a way that is very ominous? And then let's take a step back and see his side of the story and make him a human being, not just a scary North Korean guy, you know? And that was really, I think, something we try to do with every character in the show is humanize them and make what they initially seem to be not what they are in the end of the day. Yeah, and especially because, just to add to that, I think usually, you know, you have a season to really get to know these characters and to Mm -hmm. get to build them up. I think with Lee... We were already, you know, it was end of episode nine. So we had the last episode. And I think Matt and I, the more we thought about it and thinking about the episode, we're like, at first it was like one scene. It became two scenes, then three scenes. Like it really built organically into this little 10 minute short film, Mm -hmm. as you put it, about getting to know him as more than just a threat, but as a human being, Mm -hmm. where by the time you see that same moment at the end of the cold open, Mm -hmm. you're realizing, oh my God, I'd be terrified if I was him. Mm -hmm. And he's the one terrified of you guys. So it's really flipping it in 10 minutes is a lot. And I have to say it's a credit to the actor for pulling that off. Yeah, Yeah. CS was so good in this role. And, you know, so much of that work, I wasn't there for. It was just him doing solo work in this small little capsule. And he remained so alive and so full of, hope and like a childlike warmth to him. I just thought his performance was just so remarkable. Yeah. Talk to me more about the, because on the page, it didn't read necessarily like it was going to be funny. And I feel like on the day that (laughs) Lev, who plays Kuznetsov, and I just had a blast. Were you guys surprised at how funny that stick-em-up scene ended up being? 
Oh yeah, we definitely wrote it with the hope that it would be funny, and mm-hmm. I and we're very happy to see how funny it turned out to be because nice. it's it's really an absurd scene, you know. <laughs> and so, the two of you realizing that you neither of you were first, rude, <laughs> and such a good moment. Such a good moment. <laughs> I love Purple. that moment rude. so much. <laughs> Okay, so now let's, I mean, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the bombing at JSC. It's both an absolute surprise and also totally made sense that Jimmy Stevens has been wrapped up in this kind of subversive group of vigilantes. Was this meant to be a reflection of like what happened in real life with the Oklahoma City bombing? Is that the thought process with that one? Yeah, I mean, I think like many things in the show, we it's an alt history, but we like to bring in events from real history in the moment mm-hmm. in one way or another. I think this is not literally that bombing, obviously. Mm-hmm, of course, but yes. Just, you know, that bombing was such a big part of this era of mm-hmm. the 90s. And it felt natural that it would speak to that, you know, to that moment in history. And I think, you know, that bombing, it's interesting looking back at it because I feel like every season we have this big idea at the end. And the immediate reaction is, no, we can't do that. <laughs> we can't bomb JSC, that's crazy. You know, yeah. just like with Gordo and Tracy, we can't kill Gordo and Tracy. We can't. And it's the thing that in the room, as you know, as the weeks and months went by, it kept coming back up. It kept mm-hmm. coming back up. And it, and it kept being this thing of like, it felt right. Even though it's such an awful thing, it felt like the right move for the show at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever there's progress in the world, there's that pushback, there's that reaction to progress. Mm-hmm. And I think we really wanted to get life to this idea of, in an alt history where we'd go more into space and dedicate more resources to space, where are those resources being taken from? And what, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot of that is in energy and oil, which by the way, is a huge part of Texas, you know? So the idea that these workers, these guys would be so impacted by what the world sees as progress, I thought was a really interesting thing to touch on in a way that, you know, felt right to build to. And, you know, I think the Jimmy part of it, we wanted to go at it from a different angle where, you know, he's just a cog in the small part of this. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing his run this season and how you're never quite sure what he's into and what they're up to. And, you know, there's kind of sleight of hand and misdirect. That was mm-hmm. all carefully choreographed as well. And and I think we're really happy with how, how that turned out. That you, yeah. do, you really don't see this coming. Okay, Matt. So let's just do it. Let's just pull the freaking bandage off. Let's just talk about... <laughs> Losing Molly. Okay, let's just discuss it. So Molly, her death, which was so Molly-like in sacrificing herself, facing danger to save other folks. Yeah, I think I've talked with you about this before, but like casting Sonia, finding Sonia in that way where it was literally like the last tape we saw and it was just like, that's Molly. And she as well, she really brought so much to the character and it just felt i think to us like having her uh go out in that way sacrificing herself it wasn't even really a sacrifice it was just it was pure heroism mm-hmm. you know she wasn't going to let a, any person perish that was in there and she was going to keep going until she she had hauled every person out of there she could find and it just felt like the right ending to her so it was very, very uh, emotional, I think, writing that scene and and the idea of renaming Johnson Space mm-hmm. Center after her character is just such a, 
she really did embody in a lot of ways what NASA was all about. So it felt like the right kind of epitaph. Ben, talk to me about why it was necessary for Molly to in many ways come back and save the day when it came to Ed needing support in his mission to get Kelly boogie boarded onto the Phoenix. Well, it's interesting, you know, we kept talking about before season three, like, okay, the firing, you know, the whole thing between her, Margot, and Molly was mm-hmm. kind of a fascinating thing where it's like, no one will see that moment coming. And, you know, we didn't want to do a whole season of Molly Cobb being in the office, being, mm-hmm. the, you know, head of the mm-hmm. astronaut office again. Mm-hmm. We felt like we've told that story and we didn't want to do a whole season of that. But we also didn't, I have to say, like, as the season went, you know, we didn't really know how we were going to bring her back. But we knew we wanted to bring her back. We knew that we can't end her story with her being fired. You know, that didn't feel right for that character that everyone so so loves. So as Matt and I were kind of crafting that last episode, it, it did keep coming up the idea of like, well, who would Ed, forget NASA, like in the end of the day, who would Ed listen to? Who would Ed trust? Who would mm-hmm. he? There's nobody. There's nobody other than Molly Cobb, you know? And it felt so natural a moment Because again, like everything with this show, we want it to feel right. So it all started from that place of like, who would Ed trust? And also the fun of (laughs) Margot. Margot having to deal with Molly again. I mean, you know, it was so juicy. I remember the moment it came up, we were just smiling. Oh, this is perfect. That moment with Margot and Molly, she walks in. The history that's there. And, you know, in terms of the death, you know, I think it was only when we were taught. It's funny. I I kind of remember this moment still, Matt, where like, I think we were like sitting talking. You know, a lot of Matt and I's process is talking. Um, <laughs> a lot of talking. Um, just the a two lot. of us. We'll, we'll walk a and lot. talk and so talk and talk. So much talking. <laughs> I know, who knew that so much of writing is talking? If you told me that when I was a kid, I'd be like, that's crazy. But I, rem- I still remember that moment where Matt and I were talking out the ending and we're talking about the bombing and there's smoke everywhere. Mm. And... I remember, I don't remember who had the idea. I just kind of remember the both of us looking at each other like that. Oh my God, who is in this moment where you can't see anything? Who would not be hurt by that? But Molly Cobb, you know, I mean, suddenly the woman who's worked for years in this building, who knows every step, every wall, every Mm -hmm. corner Mm -hmm. would be the one person who being blind wouldn't be a handicap in this moment. And it was that kind of kismet moment you get as a writer every once in a while. We're like, of course. It's perfect. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's the same woman who, in spite of the risks of radiation, went back to get Wubbo in season two. There is no way Molly Cobb was just going out of that building. There was no way. She was going back in. There was never a doubt about that in our minds. Okay. So now we got to do it. Now we got to talk about the death of Karen Baldwin. Oh, I hate I this mean, show. I hate this show. I, don't, I, I hate I it. Hate I hate it. all what? of it. Yeah. I hate y'all. I hate <laughs> I'm mad. It's, it, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you when I, you know, I read it and I didn't know that Karen would die. And I remember just like flipping back and forth and being like, hold on, why does it say that she dies? That, let me just make sure this is, let me zoom in on the <laughs> iPad. And once I it registered with me that she died, I just truly sat my hands on my lap and just openly wept. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So Matt, why did y'all do that? Oh, 
I oh. still don't. It was, I'm not sure. Honestly, it's it's no, it it's one of those things like we've talked about before with other outcomes like this, where the fact that that we love first of all the actor so much, like mm-hmm. Chantal is the heart and soul of For All Mankind. I mean, she really is just like that that warm presence that's just and such a believer in the show and and her journey from sort of a housewife, you know, that astro wife to the CEO of a major company, space company is really probably the biggest arc of a character in the show. And I think there was an element that's sprinkled throughout every season, which is that question of how much does the space program ask of you and your family? Mm -hmm. And she was always confronted with those sacrifices. And this was the ultimate sacrifice on her part there's an element of senselessness to it. Like it was not like a sort of, we really wanted this bombing to have a heart-wrenching impact on the show. And these bombings do have a, a lot of senseless damage that they cause. And so I think a big part of it was that, that you want we wanted that sense of, a, of an unexplainable loss, that there wasn't a sort of a, a beautiful meaning behind it or a heroism or a, it was just a tragedy. Uh, on a certain level, you know? Which is beautiful and also so real. You know, I think, like you said, and it's easy to look for a story that feels like it's buttoned up in in a perfect little bow. And this makes sense. And this person lived their life and they lived to the fullest. Ben, was there a moment when you guys thought, we can't do this? Oh my God, every death that we go through, a thousand conversations. And this one was a really tough one because like Matt said, you know, I think there's two sides to it. One is, what is the story we have left to tell with the character? Is this mm-hmm. the end? And it did feel also like we'd reached that point with Karen's story and her arc in the show. And at the same time, yeah, like a bombing impacts you, but the shock of it, you know, it's the character you love. I think that what you just expressed, the idea that every time people read the script, they had to read it again to, to get to that point and really understand it makes so much sense when you think about Karen's role in the show, that she's the one on Earth, you know, and the idea that you're supposed to be safe on Earth. It's the people up there that are in danger. And he, here she is, you know, 20 minutes earlier, waiting to hear if her ex-husband and daughter are going to be safe. Mm-hmm. So the idea that something happens to her, you know, while Ed and Kelly survive is truly tragic, but also felt like a really compelling and interesting way to end the season in many ways, you know, like that, how to really um, convey that idea. Yeah. It was so hard. I look back at Gordo and Tracy, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think the nature of the show is, it is part of the nature of the show, you know, that we we're jumping in time. We're telling the story of people's lifetimes. And in many cases, those lifetimes don't go to the very end, you know, in life as well and as art. So I think, you know, it, it was sort of a really difficult death it still is difficult. And Mm -hmm. and I think for that very reason, it's going to resonate. Matt, I'm curious. You know, we talk about the characters that we love and that we've grown to know over many years. And in many ways, JSC has become a cast member just the same way that Molly and Karen and Ellen and all these folks are. I mean, each year it shifts and it changes and there are more patches on the walls and the computers get touch screens and things like that. But this space is home. What was it like to see it just completely blown to smithereens? 
I was honestly surprised how uh, emotional I got walking into that room the first time I saw it mm-hmm. uh, with all all of the the tubes hanging out of the ceiling and the you know even the amount of of times Ben and I have referenced that ceiling in interviews because Dan Bishop <laughs> d- it's the an exact replica of the actual mission control ceiling okay. in, down to the you guys are the such ceiling nerds. tiles yeah and and, <laughs> yeah, and really that it was the just, ceiling there yeah like anyone cares about this <laughs> I know. never noticed the ceiling <laughs> but but that it was ripped to shreds you yeah. know that beautiful uh ceiling <laughs> <laughs> Never get that, that ceiling, ceiling back. back. <laughs> We're gonna have to the do a flashback with that ceiling. ceiling I feel I've like it's ever <laughs> But but it was like I don't know, just the the monitors all smashed, and it was yeah. it was uh, it was very impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that moment with Alita when mm-hmm. you're pulling back, I have to say, I that gets me every time. You know, because I think up until that shot, I don't think you quite know how bad it is right you like there's smoke there's ceiling but you're like okay wait what happened how what really went down and it's that moment which we purposely save till the end when you're pulling back from her and you i think that there's no way you you aren't shocked in that moment of how big how big this was and the impact it's going to have now the scope of it all and I also want to talk about that, of course, that moment that Aleda is in the office and we discover that Margot was not there. I mean, you guys really got me. <laughs> I did not expect that. Because in reading it, you first think, oh man, okay, maybe Margot got sucked out in a vacuum, you know, like she just was so blown yeah. up, you know, whatever. And we see the pianos upturned and all of that. And then it turns out that no, Miss Margot made her escape. What? <laughs> Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. Say more. <laughs> yeah, we you know the idea of Margot going to the Soviet Union has been something we've been waiting to do since before we shot one frame of the series. Like we always have known that that's kind of where really? she was headed. Oh yeah. I did not and know that. And so the the sort of evolution of her even from those early conversations with her and Werner von Braun mm-hmm. about him choosing which place to go, the Soviet Union or uh, or America to give his life's work to. Those were all written with where we were going in mind and the fact that uh, we didn't know that that was going to all happen at the same time as this as this bombing, but seeing it come together in that way where I think I mean, my hope is that it's really going to be a shock to people Mm -hmm. that she was not just a victim in the bombing. Oh, I think it's perfect. I think it's so perfect. Because she knows that she's going to, you know, live in Guantanamo Bay somewhere if she's not, you know, she doesn't get out of here sooner. And that choice of like, wow, if you were confronted with that choice of like someone who lives for their work, who's lived in their office Mm -hmm. for the last 25, 30 years... And if you're confronted with, you can either continue your work for the other team, or you can just go to jail for 30 years. That's a quite a choice to make. Especially if your life is your work, like in Margot's. Yeah. I mean, this is someone we've seen wake up in her office, and mm-hmm. you know, to give that up, I think, was too big a price for her. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I love that montage. I mean, it's just so clever. It's so charming. It's the kind of thing that you don't expect to continue. And much like the high bob, it's one of those lovely callbacks that, you know, the audience, I think, grows accustomed to. I know I do. Um, let's talk a little bit about something slightly happier, which is that Ellen 
has found love and seemingly <laughs> can live maybe happily ever after with Pam. <laughs> oh my God, girl. It's so it's like that. I mean, because you're you're met with all this horror and just death. Uh, yeah. And and when Pam opens that door and the two of them see each other, I just screamed. I mean, it was like at a One Direction concert. Just like, ah! <laughs> So tell me, are they going to be happy? <laughs> well, I can't tell you that. Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But I, I agree with you. I think, you know, this show is always a mixture of tragedy and hope. And I think for us, we always saw that as the, you know, that love story is such a central part of the show mm-hmm. and really torturing those characters in the yeah. audience for all these years <laughs> with oh, yeah. their love story. It, it, early on, I think, you know, not that we decided this early. I feel it was something that as we went through it, it just felt right mm-hmm. after all I'd been through, after all we'd been through for the two of them to be together and to give Ellen that at the end just felt right, especially in the face of everything, but uh, to be continued. And what I love about that moment between them also is that there's this unspoken acknowledgement that this is not going to be easy, mm-hmm. what what we're choosing to do here, but we're going to be in it together. Yeah, I think that that really made it feel real. You want to talk about what's not going to be easy is poor Danny Stevens living in isolation Oof. in a freaking capsule on his own and danielle's yeah. like uh we'll bring you food once a month i mean <laughs> this is looking really grim talk to me more matt you start off about the i mean just the crazy mindset of danny i mean we saw this kid who was this little boy in a bicycle you know playing jacks in the front yard and now he is being marooned on his own to live in solitude. I mean, you want to talk about tragic, like say more. Yeah. He, I think he may be the most tragic figure of the whole series to this point, because so much of what Danny is was not his own doing, even Mm -hmm. though he bears a lot of personal responsibility for the things that happened. But with his best friend passing away and the guilt he felt connected to that, that we learned more about in episode eight and then his parents passing away and all of the expectations of the world on him. His parents were lovers on the lunar surface, like mm-hmm. the heroes of the world. And it's like, well, how do you live up to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you mix in his sort of obsession with with Karen. And I think he just had a lot, he had so much shame and guilt swirling around inside that he had to kind of kill that with, you know, there's references in between season two and three to him having uh, sort of becoming an alcoholic mm-hmm. and having to go to into the program and mm-hmm. Danielle and Ed kind of pulling him back from the brink. But in episode 10, seeing that guilt come back to the surface when he's begging Ed to let him, you know, because everybody thinks Ed's flight, the flight to take Kelly up, will save Kelly and the pilot might be a will suicide likely mission. die. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so he is trying to be a hero in that moment. He's trying to, but it felt too easy to us to give him actually that out. And it didn't feel like Ed would give him that out. And so making him sort of live with the the consequences of his sins, mm-hmm. it felt like the right ending. And it's it's certainly not going to be easy on him to sort of be be banished on Mars in the mm-hmm. North Korean capsule. But but um uh, this really is a crazy show. I mean, you guys are sickos. You guys <laughs> I just said that. I just said that sickos. out loud. Yeah. Jeez, this guy lost it's his parents, the- and now you go. I mean, this is horrible. Yeah. yeah, I think 
what Casey did with this character is incredible this year, honestly, because one, it's never easy to play this type of character, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that the audience just hates. But I think what he did and what I think we love subverting your feelings about a character. So it's like, you hate Mm -hmm. this guy? Well, you're going to love this guy or you're going to like this guy at least or you're going to be feel complicated about your feelings for this person. And I think this was a debate we had in the writer's room all the time, you know, about Danny and like how far we go, how, you know, it was always a fascinating conversation. I think that's why people are kind of fascinated by him and hate him and something, you know, passion is passion. Mm -hmm. I think the passion for Danny Stevens says, even if you hate him, you care enough to really care, Mm -hmm. says something about both the job Casey did, but also I feel like the, the way this character's written and that ending, which, you know, it felt right. Like there was no way they were going to keep him on the base with them after what they found out. There was no way. Mm-hmm. No, so no, if no, no, you're no. up there, if you're, yeah. if you're Danielle mm-hmm. and you're Ed and you're like, hey, what do we do? We don't have a prison. We don't want him here, but he's stuck here for 15 months. Suddenly, and by the way, almost as if we planned it, wink, wink, mm-hmm. um, there's a, <laughs> that North Korean capsule. Mm-hmm. It's the perfect place. And so it just, it felt right for that to be the answer. And yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. You know, I think that's part of it. He's got to pay for his sins. And it felt like the right way to do it without going, you know, overboard. Oof. Okay. As we bring the conversation to a close at the time of this recording, we do not have officially a season four. However, should we get a season four before this recording is aired? <laughs> what can wink, folks? Wink. <laughs> there you go. Should we prepare for a season four? What would that look like? Hit me with some spoilers. <laughs> just, just pontificate. If we were to make another season, I would say. You know, I hate to say this, but I feel like the show keeps getting bigger <laughs> and bigger, and I'm terrified of season four because how can we outdo what we just did? But we will. Yeah. I think what's really exciting to me about next season is like we did from one and you know from season one and two when you went from that little that little room that you're so familiar with, Chris <laughs> in Jamestown, that teeny to the bigger tin James- can, yeah, <laughs> to the bigger base uh, of Jamestown season two. I think seeing the expansion of our presence on Mars and really, you know, with all our consultants and tech and researchers, we you know we're putting a lot of effort into really finding a grounded way to tell the story of what it is to live on Mars, what it Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. to survive on Mars. And and I think expanding that into next season is very exciting for us. And I think people will really dig what we've come up with. And, and I, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that you may, you know, we've been on the moon, we've been to Mars and there is another world we're going (gasps) to explore in season four for the first time. Oh my goodness. The Soviet (gasps) union. Oh wow. (laughs) Nice. So, nice. so we are going to see, you know, that little tease of Margot at the end is definitely something we're looking to potentially continue into into season four. Yeah, what is Margot's life behind the Iron Curtain look like? Is a pretty interesting question. Yeah. Well, I can't say it enough how much I love working with this cast, this crew. I love the story that we tell. But I think it really all comes down to the leadership from you guys. I think you guys do an amazing job of creating an environment where folks feel heard and important and respected. And I think that that makes for great TV. So, Ben Adivi, Matt Wolpert, thank you for being on the For All Mankind podcast. Say goodbye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
With that, we have reached the end of this season of For All Mankind, the official podcast. A huge thank you to all of our guests, my wonderful castmates, our incredibly talented crew, and of course, our wildly imaginative writers and creators. I'm inspired by what Ron Moore said back in episode one of the pod, that at its core, the show is about a sense of discovery, to push beyond our small corner of the universe, and to see what's over that next horizon. So, in the spirit of our show, I'll say a final thank you to you, our listener, for joining us on this exploration, deeper and further into the world of For All Mankind. I can't wait to see where we go next. Be sure to listen and follow on Apple Podcasts and watch the full season of For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Atwill Media, executive produced by Will Malnati, and me, Chris Marshall. Produced by Elliot Davis, Drew Beebe, Naila Andre, and Jenny Barish. Sound editing and mixing by Andrew Holzberger. Until next time, I'm Chris Marshall. Still safe, still sound, still Earthside.